Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 327. Today's big Bible questions are, who was the first evangelist and was Jesus raised in a Christian family? Well, happy Wednesday to you, dear friends. Hope you are staying safe out there. Two questions today yet again, but both are fairly short. Before we get there, one little nugget from episode number 325, a verse that I should have included in that discussion about how we Christians aren't first and foremost citizens of whatever country we're from, but strangers and exiles, citizens of heaven. We see this outline pretty clearly again today in Hebrews 13 verse 14, for we do not have an enduring city here, instead we seek the one to come. Well, that's words to think about. Our first question to tackle today is more of a point of interest. Who was the first named evangelist to speak out about Jesus after his birth? Now, if I'm reading the text correctly, I believe the answer is Anna, though I admit there are a few ways to take that question and thus a few ways to answer it. In Luke 2, we read that Anna, when Jesus was only eight days old, appears to be the first recorded person to speak out about Jesus to other people after his birth. Now, it does appear that the shepherds also spoke out about Jesus after his birth, after his birth, but we don't have their names. And here's the text from Luke 2, 36-38. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Well, what an interesting woman, this Anna. We barely know anything about her. This passage in Luke 2 is the only place in the Bible that mentions her, but she's fascinating. I do understand there's a slight bit of ambiguity in the way that the Greek presents her age here. Uh, You can take it two ways. She is either 84 years old or she's been a widow for 84 years, and it's probably the latter. I think the CSB has it right there, but, you know, I do a little Greek, but I'm no Greek scholar. Either way, she has spent decade upon decade upon decade upon decade somehow living in the temple of God, serving him night and day with fasting and prayers. That's honestly an astounding testimony when you think about it. She was so completely and wholly devoted to God that it is said she never left the temple, but sought him and prayed to him and fasted day and night for virtually all of her long adult life. I guess I don't even need to say virtually there. It's all of her long adult life. I suspect that her reward in heaven will just be incredible. What an amazing and completely unsung hero of the faith. I suspect Anna is going to be one of the giants in heaven. Just so honored among the citizens of heaven even though on earth, not again, not much is known about her. Well, let's read all of Luke chapter 2 and then tackle our second big Bible question. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. 
While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord, Every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace, as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was a widow for eighty-four years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Every year, his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was twelve years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey, then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. 
When his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. So, our second big Bible question is honestly and intentionally a little bit silly. But I asked the question to focus in on an important truth that I honestly think some people forget. The question was somewhat inspired by a post I saw on Facebook today in one of the pastor's groups that I'm a member of. A pastor posted a status that he ostensibly copied from somebody else. It was a screenshot. And in that screenshot, the person posting said, The Bible was written entirely by the greatest American who ever lived, Jesus. In that screenshot, somebody replied, Is this a joke? And the original poster, the op, supposedly wrote, It's called history, sweaty. Look it up. Now, I assume she or he meant sweetie, not sweaty. But look, I think it's very likely that this screenshot was completely manufactured as a joke. I truly hope nobody thinks that the entire Bible was written by Jesus, who was an American, but I suppose it's possible, and I think such a thing is at least a little bit possible because of the presence of anti-Semitism. If that's not a word you are absolutely familiar with, anti-Semitism is a word that indicates racism towards Jewish people. Perhaps the most mind-boggling thing in the world is anti-Semitism or anti-Semitism when it comes from a Christian, especially at the national level, like we saw leading up to World War II in a country, Germany, that was largely Christian at the time. How in the world could Christians go along with the Holocaust when Jesus was a Jew? By the way, you might have heard before that uh, Hitler was a Christian. Not at all true. There's zero evidence of that. In fact, I think there's much more evidence uh, to the contrary, but there were most certainly Jews in the Nazi, I mean, there were most certainly people who claimed to be Christians that were Nazis, and Germany was a Christian nation, the, the home of Protestantism, the home of Martin Luther, who himself maybe had said a few uh, not right things about the Jewish people, but my question is, how could any Christian have even a tiny shred of anti-Semitism in their thoughts or feelings when Jesus was a Jew? That's the point of our question today. Was Jesus raised in a Christian home? And the answer is, of course not. Jesus was raised in a Jewish home that faithfully followed the law. We see that in verse 21, when his parents took him after eight days to complete his purification. We see it in verse 23, just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. We see it in uh, verse 24, according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, turtle doves or two young pigeons were offered for sacrifice for Jesus. And we see it in verse 39, when they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee in their own town of Nazareth. And then we see it in verse 41. Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. 
When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. So Jesus was raised in a law-observing, faithful Jewish household by people who loved Yahweh and followed his commands. Jesus was a Jewish man, not white or American, but brown and Middle Eastern, which, again, should immediately disabuse any person claiming Christ of any sort of racism whatsoever. My philosophy professor in college, Dr. Dennis Sansom, told us a story about a documentary on the German persecution of the Jews that I've never seen with my own eyes, but I remember vividly him telling us about a scene uh, in that documentary. After the liberation of one of the consecration camps, I don't remember if it was Dachau or Auschwitz, uh, I'm not sure, but after a liberation of one of the concentration camps, these Nazi guards were asked how they could possibly justify the torture of the Jewish people in those horrible, horrid, just terrible places. And after a long and awkward pause, one volunteered, well, the Jews killed Jesus. Well, first of all, the Romans actually killed Jesus, admittedly at the behest of some of the Jews. But more importantly, Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were Jewish. Paul was Jewish. Almost everybody in the Bible was Jewish. We would do well to remember that our faith and our God are not American or British or Australian or Indian or whatever country you hail from, but Jesus was Jewish and raised in a Jewish house. Now, that shouldn't make you feel excluded or me, but of course, because as Simeon tells us in Luke 2, hardly a week after Jesus was born, he was sent as salvation to the whole world. And we read that Luke 2 31 through uh, thir- uh, 30 through 32, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. So Jesus is a light for the Gentiles, which is, you know, any of us not born in Israel, and glory to the people of Israel. By the way, on the claim that the Jews killed Jesus, let me close with a brief note from Pastor Tim Keller on that topic. Karl Barth said there is an anti-Semitic way of speaking about the death of Jesus. Some people, out of anti-Semitic bias and feeling, say the Jews killed Jesus. Karl Barth said not only is that anti-Semitic, but it's nonsense. It doesn't help. It's not illuminating. Here's what he means. He says, imagine somebody saying the Greeks killed Socrates. You'd say, okay, well, Socrates was Greek. His enemies were Greek. His friends were Greek. Of course, Greeks would be involved in the death of Socrates, but that's not specific enough. It doesn't really tell you who killed Socrates when you say Greeks killed Socrates. In the same way, Jesus was a Jew, his friends were Jewish, and his enemies were Jewish. So to say Jews killed Jesus, of course, Jews were involved, but it's not nearly specific enough. It doesn't really tell us who killed Jesus. Karl Barth asked the question, who did kill Jesus? And the answer is, religious people killed Jesus. He He says, not only do you see everywhere in the New Testament a hostility by Jesus towards religion, when Jesus gets near people from the world, when Jesus gets near worldly people, he's very patient, very kind. When he gets near religious leaders, though, he's very sharp. On the other hand, it's religious people who were the angriest at what Jesus said. Over and over and over again, the crowds, the hoi poli, the common people of the world were fascinated with Jesus. Maybe they didn't believe what he said, but the religious people were angry. One of the main points of the New Testament is you're never going to get Christianity unless you see it is something utterly different and beyond religion. Well, that is something to think about, dear friends. Jesus was Jewish. Anna was at least one of the first evangelists of Jesus, if not the first. 
And he was the king of kings and is the king of kings. Let's continue our reading today. And we're going to go ahead and start in 1 Chronicles 11 because we have made our way through all of the long names that are difficult to pronounce. 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 1. All of Israel came together to David at Hebron and said, Here we are, your own flesh and blood. Even previously, when Saul was king, you were leading Israel out to battle and bringing us back. The Lord your God also said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. David made a covenant with them at Hebron in the Lord's presence, and they anointed David king over Israel in keeping with the Lord's word through Samuel. David and all of Israel marched to Jerusalem, that is, Jebus. The Jebusites who inhabited the land were there. The inhabitants of Jebus, or Jebus, said to David, You will never get in here. Yet David did capture the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. David said, Whoever is the first to kill a Jebusite will become chief commander. Joab, son of Zariah, went up first, so he became the chief. Then David took up residence in the stronghold. Therefore, it was called the city of David. He built up the city all the way around from the supporting terraces to the surrounding parts, and Joab restored the rest of the city. David steadily grew more powerful, and the Lord of armies was with him. The following were the chiefs of David's warriors who, together with all of Israel, strongly supported him in his reign to make him king according to the Lord's word about Israel. This is a list of David's warriors. Jashabim, son of Hachmini, was chief of the thirty. He wielded his spear against three hundred and killed them at one time. After him, Eleazar, son of Dodo, the Ahoite, was one of the three warriors. He was with David at Pastamim when the Philistines had gathered there for battle. There was a portion of a field full of barley where the troops had fled from the Philistines, but Eleazar and David took their stand in the middle of the field and defended it, They killed the Philistines, and the Lord gave them a great victory. Three of the thirty chief men went down to David to the rock at the cave of Adullam, while the Philistine army was encamped at Rephaim Valley. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and a Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David was extremely thirsty and said, If only someone would bring me water to drink from the well at the city gate of Bethlehem. So the three broke through the Philistine camp and drew water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. They brought it back to David, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. David said, I would never do such a thing in the presence of my God. How can I drink the blood of these men who risked their lives? For they brought it at the risk of their lives. So he would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three warriors. Abishai, Joab's brother, was the leader of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men and killed them, gaining a reputation among the three. He was more honored than the three and became their commander, even though he did not become one of the three. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was the son of a brave man from Kabziel, a man of many exploits. Benaiah killed two sons of Ariel of Moab, and he went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. He also killed an Egyptian who was seven and a half feet tall. Even though the Egyptian had a spear in his hand like a weaver's beam, Benaiah went down to him with a staff, snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and then killed him with his own spear. 
These were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, who had a reputation among the three warriors. He was the most honored of the thirty, but he did not become one of the three. David put him in charge of his bodyguard. The best soldiers were Joab's brother Ashahel, Elhanan, son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shemoth the Harohite, Helez the Pelonite, Ira, son of Akish the Tekoite, Abiezer the Anathothite, Sibachai the Hushathite, Eli the Ahohite, Maharai the Netophathite, Heled son of Banah the Netophathite, Ithai son of Ribal from Gibeah of the Benjaminites, Benaiah the Pirathonite, Harai from the Wadis of Gaish, Abiel the Arbathite, Asmaveth the Baharumite, Eliaba the Shalbanite, the sons of Hashem the Gizanite, Jonathan son of Shagi the Haranite, Achiam son of Shakar the Hararite, Eliphal, son of Ur, Hefer, the Mechathite, Ahijah, the Pelonite, Hezro, the Carmelite, Narai, son of Ezbi, Joel, the brother of Nathan, Mibhar, son of Hagri, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Birathite, the armor-bearer, for Joab, son of Zariah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gareb, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hethite, Zabad, son of Ahai, Adina, son of Sheza, the Reubenite, chief of the Reubenites, and thirty with him, Hanan, son of Makar, Joshaphat, the Mithnite, Uzziah, the Ashtarathite, Shema and Jael, the sons of Hotham, the Ararite, Jediel, son of Shimri, and his brother, Joha, the Tizite, Eliel, the Mahavite, Jerobai, and Joshaviah, the sons of Iniam, Ithma, the Moabite, Eliel, Obed, and Jatziel, the Mezobite. Well, there were more names than I thought there. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 1. The following were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still banned from the presence of Saul, son of Kish. They were among the warriors who helped him in battle. They were archers who could use either the right or the left hand, both the sling stones and shoot arrows from a bow. They were Saul's relatives from Benjamin. Their chief was Ahietzer, son of Shema the Gibeathite. Then there was his brother Joash, Jetziel, and Pelel, sons of Asmaveth, Barakah, Jehu the Anathothite, Ishmaiah the Gibeonite, a warrior among the thirty and a leader over the thirty, Jeremiah, Jehatziel, Johanan, Jatzabad the Gedarathite, Eluzai, Jeremathoth, Beliah, Shemariah, Shephatiah the Harabite, Elkanah, Ishiah, Azarel, Jotzer, and Jashobim the Korahites, and Jola and Zebediah, the sons of Jeroham, from Gedor. Some Gadites defected to David at his stronghold in the desert. They were valiant warriors, trained for battle, expert with shield and spear. Their faces were like the faces of lions, and they were as swift as gazelles on the mountains. Ezer was the chief, Obadiah second, Eliab third, Mishmanah fourth, Jeremiah fifth, Atai sixth, Eliel seventh, Johanan eighth, Elzebad ninth, Jeremiah tenth, and Machbanai eleventh. These Gadites were army commanders. The least of them was a match for a hundred, and the greatest of them for a thousand. These were the men who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks and put to flight all those in the valleys to the east and to the west. Other Benjaminites were men from Judah, and men from Judah also went to David at the stronghold. David went out to meet them and said to them, If you have come in peace to help me, My heart will be united with you, but if you've come to betray me to my enemies, even though my hands have done no wrong, may the God of our ancestors look on it and judge. Then the spirit enveloped Amasai, chief of the thirty, and he said, We are yours, David. We are with you, son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to him who helps you, for your God helps you. 
So David received them and made them leaders of his troops. Some Manassites defected to David when he went with the Philistines to fight against Saul. However, they did not help the Philistines because the Philistine rulers sent David away after a discussion. They said it will be our heads if he defects to his master Saul. When David went to Ziklag, some men from Manasseh defected to him. Adna, Jotzebed, Jediel, Michael, Jotzebed, Elihu, and Zilathai, chiefs of thousands in Manasseh. They helped David against raiders, for they were all valiant warriors and commanders in the army. At that time, men came day after day to help David until there was a great army like an army of God. The numbers of the armed troops who came to David at Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom over to him, according to the Lord's word, were as follows. From the Judahites, 6,800 armed troops bearing shields and spears. From the Simeonites, 7,100 valiant warriors ready for war. From the Levites, 4,600, in addition to Jehoiada, leader of the house of Aaron, with 3,700 men, and Zadok, a young valiant warrior with 22 commanders from his ancestral family. From the Benjaminites, the relatives of Saul, 3,000 up to that time. The majority of the Benjaminites maintained their allegiance to the house of Saul. From the Ephraimites, 20,800 valiant warriors who were famous men in their ancestral families. From the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 designated by name to come and make David king. From the Issacharites, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do, 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. From Zebulon, 50,000 who could serve in the army, trained for battle with all kinds of weapons of war, with one purpose, to help David. From Naphtali, 1,000 commanders accompanied by 37,000 men with shield and spear. From the Danites, 28,600 trained for battle. From Asher, 40,000 who could serve in the army, trained for battle. From across the Jordan, from the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, 120,000 men equipped with all the military weapons of war. All these warriors lined up in battle formation came to Hebron wholeheartedly determined to make David king over all of Israel. All the rest of Israel was also of one mind to make David king. They spent three days there eating and drinking with David, for their relatives had provided for them. In addition, their neighbors from as far away as Issachar, Zebulon, and Naphtali came and brought food on donkeys, camels, mules, and oxen, abundant provisions of flour, fig cakes, raisins, wines, and oil, herds, and flocks. Indeed, there was joy in Israel. Amos chapter 7. The Lord God showed me this. He was forming a swarm of locusts at the time the spring crop first began to sprout after the cutting of the king's hay. When the locusts finished eating the vegetation of the land, I said, Lord God, please forgive. How will Jacob survive since he is so small? The Lord relented concerning this. It will not happen, he said. The Lord God showed me this. The Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. It consumed the great deep and devoured the land. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. Jacob, how will Jacob survive since he is so small? And the Lord relented concerning this. This will not happen either, said the Lord God. He showed me this. The Lord was standing there by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? And I replied, a plumb line? Then the Lord said, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will no longer spare them. Isaac's high places will be deserted. 
and Israel's sanctuaries will be in ruins. I will raise up against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent word to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you right here in the house of Israel. The land cannot endure all his words. For Amos has said this, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go away, you seer! Flee to the land of Judah, earn your living and give your prophecies there, but don't ever prophesy at Bethel again, for it's the king's sanctuary and a royal temple. So Amos answered Amaziah, I was not a prophet or the son of a prophet, rather I was a herdsman and I took care of sycamore figs, but the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, your wife will be a prostitute in the city, your sons and daughters will fall by the sword, and your land will be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself will die on pagan soil, and Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them, and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not benefited. We have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the gate, so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace, for we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience, wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything, And I urge you all the more to pray that I may be restored to you very soon. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly Be aware that our brother Timothy has been released. If he comes soon enough, he will be with me when I see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who are from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Amen and amen. Good day, friends, and Godspeed.